Chapter 18 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 18 Below the cell occupied by our recluse, a great smoky room, the heavy and dusky ceiling of which never received any other light than that of the fire kindled in a vast chimney-place, always filled with iron kettles hissing and grumbling in every tone, enclosed during the whole day the Schwartz family and their skillful culinary operations. While the wife mathematically combined the greatest possible number of dinners with the fewest imaginable provisions and ingredients, the husband, seated before a table black with ink and oil, by the light of a lamp always burning in that gloomy sanctuary, artistically composed the most formidable bills filled with the most fabulous details. The meager dinners were for the goodly number of prisoners whom the officious keeper had succeeded in placing upon his list of boarders. The bills were to be presented to their bankers or relations, always without being submitted to the inspection of those who consumed this expensive nourishment. While the speculating couple earnestly gave themselves to their labor, two more peaceful personages, ensconced under the mantelpiece, lived there in silence, perfect strangers to the delights and profits of the operation. The first was a great lean cat, yellow, marked with burns, whose existence was passed in licking his paws and rolling in the ashes. The second was a young man, or rather a child, still more ugly in his kind, whose motionless and contemplative life was divided between the reading of an old worm-eaten folio, more greasy than his mother's kettles, and eternal reveries which rather resembled the beatitude of an idiot than the meditation of a thinking being. The cat had been baptized by the child with the name of Beelzebub, doubtless by antithesis to that which the child had himself received from Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz, his father and mother the pious and sacred name of Gottlieb. Gottlieb, intended for an ecclesiastic, had until fifteen years old made good progress in his studies in the Protestant liturgy, but for the past four years he had lived inert and ill by the side of the fire, without wishing to walk, without desiring to see the sun, without the power of continuing his education. A rapid and disordered growth had reduced him to this state of languor and indolence, his long, thin legs could hardly support his immoderately tall and almost dislocated form. His arms were so weak and his hands so awkward that he touched nothing without breaking it. Therefore, his avaricious mother had forbidden him the use of them, and he was only too well inclined to obey her upon that point. His puffy and beardless face, terminating in a high and open forehead, did not badly resemble a soft pear. His features were not more regular than the proportions of his body. His eyes seemed completely wandering, so far apart and divergent were they. His heavy mouth had a stupid smile, his nose was without form, his complexion sickly, his ears flat and placed much too low, scanty stiff hair sadly crowned this insipid face, more like a badly cleaned turnip than the countenance of a Christian. At least such was a poetical comparison of Madame, his mother. 
In spite of the deformities which nature had heaped upon this poor child, in spite of the shame and vexation which Madame Schwartz experienced on looking at him, Gottlieb, an only son, a resigned and inoffensive sufferer, was not less the only love and the only pride of the authors of his being. When he was less ugly, they flattered themselves that he might become a pretty youth. They had been delighted with his studious childhood and brilliant prospects. In spite of the precarious condition to which they saw him reduced, they hoped that he would recover strength, intelligence, and beauty as soon as he had finished his interminable growth. Moreover, it is not necessary to explain that maternal love accommodates itself to everything and is satisfied with little. Madame Schwartz, even while scolding and laughing at him, adored her ugly Gottlieb, and had she not seen him at every moment, planted like a pillar of salt, that was her expression, in her chimney corner, she would no longer have had the courage to thin her sauces or to swell her bills. The father Schwartz, who, like many men, had more self-love than tenderness in his paternal sentiment, persisted in extorting from and robbing his prisoners in the hope that Gottlieb would someday become a minister and famous preacher, which was his fixed idea, because before his illness the child had expressed himself with facility. But it was quite four years since he had uttered a word of good sense, and if he ever happened to join two or three together, it was only to his cat Beelzebub that he deigned to address them. In fact, Gottlieb had been declared an idiot by the physicians, and his parents alone believed in the possibility of his recovery. Still, one day Gottlieb, awakening suddenly from his apathy, had manifested to his parents the desire to learn a trade in order to relieve his ennui and put to profit his sad years of languor. They had acceded to this innocent fancy, though it was by no means consistent with the dignity of a future pastor of the Reformed Church to work with his hands. But the mind of Gottlieb appeared so determined to repose that they must needs permit him to go and study the art of shoemaking in some shoemaker's shop. His father could have wished he had chosen a more elegant profession, but it did no good to pass in review before him all the branches of industry. He obstinately persisted in following the work of St. Crispin, and even declared that he felt himself called to it by providence. As this desire became in him a fixed idea, and the simple fear of being prevented threw him into a deep melancholy, they allowed him to pass a month in the workshop of a master, after which he returned one fine morning, provided with all the necessary tools and materials, and reinstalled himself under the mantle of his dear chimney, declaring that he knew enough and required no more lessons. This was by no means probable, but his parents, hoping that this trial had disgusted him and that he would perhaps resume the study of theology, received him without reproaches and without raillery. Then commenced in the life of Gottlieb a new era, which was entirely filled and charmed by the imaginary fabrication of a pair of shoes. Three or four hours each day he took his last and all and worked upon a shoe which never shod anyone, for it was never finished. Every day recut, hammered, stretched, and pinked, it took all possible forms except that of a shoe, which did not prevent the peaceful artisan from pursuing his work with a pleasure and attention, a moderation, and a self-satisfaction above the reach of all criticism. 
The Schwartzes were at first somewhat frightened by this monomania. Then they became accustomed to it as to the rest, and the interminable shoe, alternating in the hands of Gottlieb with his volume of sermons and of prayers, was counted in his life only as an infirmity the more. Nothing more was required of him than to accompany his father from time to time in the courts and galleries in order to take the air. But these promenades vexed Mr. Schwartz very much, because the children of the other keepers and employees of the Citadel constantly ran after Gottlieb, imitating his nonchalant and awkward gait, and crying in every tone, Shoes! Shoes! Shoemaker! Make us some shoes! Gottlieb did not take these shouts in bad part. He smiled upon the malicious brood with an angelic serenity, and even stopped in order to answer. Shoes? Certainly, with all my heart. Come to my room and be measured. Who wants shoes? But Mr. Schwartz led him away to hinder his compromising himself with the vulgar, and the shoemaker appeared neither displeased nor uneasy at being thus torn from the earnestness of his customers. During the earlier days of her captivity, Consuelo had been humbly requested by Mr. Schwartz to enter into a conversation with Gottlieb in order to endeavor to awaken in him the remembrance and the love of that eloquence which, which he had appeared to be gifted in his childhood. Even while confessing the diseased condition and the apathy of his son and heir, Mr. Schwartz, faithful to that law of nature so well expressed by La Fontaine, No petites so mignons, beau, bien fait et joli surtout leurs capignons, had not faithfully described poor Gottlieb's accomplishments, or perhaps Consuela would not have refused, as she did, to receive in her cell a large young man of nineteen, who was depicted to her as follows. A smart young fellow, six feet tall, who would have made the mouths of all the recruiters of the country water, if, unfortunately for his health and fortunately for his independence, a little weakness in his arms and legs had not incapacitated him for the military profession. The captive thought that the society of a child of that age and stature was rather unsuitable in her situation, and she decidedly refused to receive him, a disobligingness which his mother Schwartz made her expiate by adding a pint of water to her soup each day. In order to walk upon the esplanade, on which she was permitted to take the air every day, Consuelo was compelled to descend to the nauseous abode of the Schwartz family and to pass through it, always with the permission and under the escort of her keeper, whom, moreover, did not require any urging, the article indefatigable complaisance in all that related to the services authorized by his orders, being charged in his bills and carried out at a high figure. It therefore happened that on passing through this kitchen, the door of which opened upon the esplanade, Consuelo at last perceived and noticed Gottlieb, that face of an immature child upon the misshapen body of a giant, at first struck her with disgust and then with pity. She spoke to him, interrogated him with kindness, and endeavored to make him converse. But she found his mind paralyzed either by his malady or by an excessive timidity, for he would not follow her to the rampart except when pushed by his parents, and answered her questions only in monosyllables. She therefore feared lest she might aggravate the ennui with which she supposed him oppressed by paying any attention to him, 
and she refrained from speaking to him and even from looking at him, after having declared to his father that she did not find in him the least inclination for the art of oratory. Consuelo had been searched anew by Madame Schwartz on the evening when she again saw her comrade and the public of Berlin for the last time but she had succeeded in deceiving the vigilance of the female Cerberus. The hour was late, the kitchen dark, and Madame Schwartz in a bad humor at being awakened from her first nap. While Gottlieb slept in a chamber, or rather in a niche, opening upon the culinary workshop, and Mr. Schwartz ascended to unlock beforehand the double iron door of the cell, Consuelo had approached the fire which slumbered under the ashes, and while pretending to caress Beelzebub, sought for a means to save her resources from the claws of the searcher in order to be no longer absolutely at her mercy. While Madame Schwartz was lighting her lamp and putting on her spectacles, Consuelo noticed in the back of the chimney, at the place where Gottlieb usually sat, a hollow place in the wall about the height of her arm, and in that mysterious case the poor idiot's book of sermons and his everlasting shoe. There was his library and his workshop. That hole, blackened by soot and smoke, contained all Gottlieb's riches, all his delights. With a quick and adroit motion, Consuelo placed her purse there, and afterwards patiently allowed herself to be examined by the old harpy, who importuned her for a long time, passing her oily and crooked fingers over every fold of her dress, surprised and angry at not finding anything. The sangfroid of Consuelo, who did not attach much importance to succeeding in her little enterprise, at last persuaded the jailoress that she had nothing, and as soon as the examination was finished, she quickly resumed her purse and kept it in her hand under her police until she reached her room. There she at once reflected upon the means of hiding it, knowing that her cell was carefully examined each day during her promenade. She could conceive nothing better than to keep her little fortune always on her person, sewed in a belt, Madame Schwartz not having the right of search except in case of exit. Still, the first sum which Madame Schwartz had seized upon her prisoner on the first day of her arrival was long since exhausted, thanks to Schwartz's ingenious manner of making out bills. When he had made some quite trifling fresh expenditures, and a quite round fresh bill according to his prudent and lucrative custom, too timid to speak of business and to ask for money of a person condemned not to have any, but well informed by her, from the first day, of the savings which she had entrusted to the porporino, the said Schwartz went to Berlin without saying a word to her and presented his account to that faithful depositary. The porporino, warned by Consuelo, refused to settle the bill until it was approved by the consumer and referred the creditor to his friend, whom he knew to have been provided by himself with additional funds. Schwartz returned pale and despairing, crying that he was bankrupt and looking upon himself as robbed, though the hundred ducats first seized upon the prisoner would have paid fourfold for all her expenses during two months. Madame Schwartz bore this pretended loss with the philosophy of a stronger head and a more persevering mind. Without doubt, we are robbed as if in a wood, said she. But have you ever counted upon this prisoner to earn your poor living? I warned you of what has happened. An actress, such people have no savings. An actor for a banker, such people have no honor. Well, we have lost two hundred ducats. 
but we will make it up on our other customers who are good. That will teach you not to offer your service inconsiderately to the first comers. I am not dissatisfied, Schwartz, that you have received this little lesson. Now I shall give myself the pleasure to put upon dry bread and even moldy this Abigail, who had not the grace enough to slip even a golden Frederick into her pocket to pay the trouble of the searcher and who seems to consider Gottlieb an imbecile without resources because he does not pay court to her. Trash, go to. Growling thus and shrugging her shoulders, Madame Schwartz resumed the course of her occupations, and finding herself under the chimney by the side of Gottlieb, she said to him, while skimming her saucepans, What are you saying there, you sly dog? She spoke for the sake of speaking, for she well knew that Gottlieb heard everything with the same ears as his cat Beelzebub. My shoe is getting on, mother, replied Gottlieb with a wandering smile. I shall soon begin a new pair. Yes, said the old woman, shaking her head with an air of pity. In that way you will make a pair every day. Go on, my boy. That will give you a fine revenue. My God, my God added she in a tone of resigned complaint and, again, covering her saucepans as if maternal indulgence had given pious feelings to that heart, petrified in every other respect. On that day, Consuelo, not seeing her dinner arrive, imagined what had happened, although she could hardly believe that a hundred ducats had been consumed in so short a time and by such miserable supplies. She had already traced out a plan of conduct with respect to the Schwartzes, not having yet received an obelisk from the king of Prussia, and fearing much that she must depend upon the promises of the past for all salary, Voltaire was paid in the same coin, she well knew that the little money she had earned by charming the ears of some few personages, less avaricious but less rich, would not go far in case her captivity was prolonged and Mr. Schwartz did not modify his demands. She wished to compel him to reduce them, and for two or three days she contented herself with the bread and water which he brought her, without pretending to notice the change in her diet. The stove began to be neglected as well as other matters, and Consuelo endured the cold without complaining. Fortunately, it was no longer insupportably rigorous. It was then April, a season less forward indeed in Prussia than in France, but in which nevertheless the temperatures began to soften. Before entering into any negotiation with the avaricious tyrant, she thought of placing her funds in safety, for she could not flatter herself that she would not be subjected to an arbitrary examination and a new seizure as soon as she should acknowledge her resources. Necessity makes us clear-sighted when it cannot make us ingenious. Consuelo had no tools with which she could cut into the wood or raise a stone. But the next day, on examining with the minute patience of which prisoners alone are capable every corner of her cell, she at last discovered a brick which did not seem so well joined to the wall as the others. By patiently scraping around it with her nails, she got out the mortar and remarked that it was not made of cement as in other places, but of a friable substance which she presumed to be the crumb of bread. She succeeded in detaching the brick and found inside a little space, certainly excavated by some prisoner, between this movable piece and the adjacent bricks which formed the thickness of the wall. She no longer doubted this when, on searching this hiding place, her fingers met with several articles, real treasures to prisoners, 
a package of pencils, a penknife, a flint, some vegetable tinder, and several rolls of that small twisted taper which we call rat de cave. These articles were uninjured, the wall being very dry, and besides they might have been left there but a short time before she took possession of the cell. She added to them her purse and her little crucifix of filigree, which Mr. Schwartz had often looked at with covetousness, saying that Gottlieb would be delighted with that plaything. Then she replaced the brick and cemented it with the crumb of her breakfast's bread, which she darkened a little by rubbing on the floor to give it the same color with the rest of the mortar. Tranquil for some time respecting her means of existence and the employment of her evenings, she firmly awaited the domiciliary visit of the Schwartzes and felt as proud and joyous as if she had discovered a new world. Still, Schwartz was soon tired of not having matter to speculate upon, even should he be obliged to do a small business, as he said, a little was better than nothing, and he broke silence to ask of his prisoner number three if she had no commands to give him for the future. Then Consuelo determined to declare to him not that she had any money, but that she should receive some every week by a means which it would be impossible for him to discover. If, moreover, you should happen to do so, said she, the result would be to prevent my making any expenditure, and it is for you to decide if you prefer the rigor of your orders to an honest profit. After having chaffered a great deal and examined for several days without success the dresses, the mattress, the floor, the furniture, Schwartz began to think that Consuelo received from some superior officer of the prison even the means of corresponding with the exterior. Corruption was everywhere in the jail, and the subalterns found it for their interest not to counteract their more powerful brothers. Let us take what God sends us, said Schwartz, sighing, and he resigned himself to account every week with the porporina. She did not dispute with him respecting the employment of her first funds, but she regulated the future so as not to pay more than double its value for any article a proceeding which seemed very mean to Madame Schwartz, but which did not prevent her from receiving her pay and earning it tolerably well. End of chapter 18, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown.